It's kind of hard to imagine what we watched this weekend as apparently there were ceasefires in place to allow Ukrainians to flee cities under siege by Russia in these humanitarian corridors, at which point Russia began shelling those very corridors once again. There was also one road, a report of one road that was being apparently used or at least earmarked to allow uh, civilians to leave that had been mined by the Russians. So can you imagine telling civilians they can leave and then killing them? I mean, that's where this war is reached. And it's, you know, there's, there are no words for it. Overall, though, of course, the humanitarian crisis is huge now. The largest, fastest growing refugee crisis in Europe since the Second World War, according to the UN. Um, and Russian forces are intensifying their shelling, food and water, heat, medicine, all scarce in cities under siege. Again, the UN Refugee Agency says the number of people who have fled the war in Ukraine has now increased to more than 1.7 million people, 1.7 million. Olga Okarenko is one of those who made it to Romania, fleeing the destruction in her hometown of Kharkiv. Whenever here somebody asks me where I'm from, and I said Kharkiv, the expression, the facial expression was like as if I arrived from Hiroshima. I saw, I saw the reaction on the face, like they were feeling sorry for me. And then I remembered everything that was going on there and I, and I broke broke down and it's very difficult. One of those many fleeing Ukraine right now, that's Olga Okamrenko from Kharkiv. Again, Russian cities or Russian forces continue to pound Ukrainian cities with rockets after announcing these limited ceasefires. There's another one apparently on the way uh, in a few hours. We'll see how that works out. One of the places badly hit, of course, continues to be the city of Mariupol, the southern port city. No electricity, food shortages, hospitals operating in basements, and a second evacuation attempt of up to 200,000 people on Sunday failed because once again, the Russians started shelling. So you can imagine why people are fleeing. The majority of them, nearly 900,000, have crossed over into Poland, often bringing with them what little they could carry, unsure if they'll ever be able to go home. For the past week, though, waiting for them on the Polish side of that border is one Alberta woman who packed up suddenly, left the family farm in Bentley, Alberta, and flew to Warsaw, and then drove towards the border to help. She's now on the front lines of this immense humanitarian crisis. And Heidi Baumbach joins me now from Reshov in Poland, near the Ukrainian border. Thanks so much for being here tonight. Thanks, Ben. No, it's great to have a chance to catch up and chat a little bit. Tell me a bit about how you got there, I mean, or where you are now and how you got there. <laughs> well, right now I'm in Reshov. Um, that's very convenient as it's about an hour away from the border. So close proximity. Um, I left Canada sometime late last week, I think Friday-ish, and um Ended up in Warsaw because that's a city I'm a little bit more familiar. And obviously, as you follow the needs, that takes you a little bit closer to the border. And a very kind man let us use his apartment. So here's where I am. Tell me about, I mean, you're a violinist. You have a music studio in Alberta. You're, you, you live on a farm. You um, sold wheat to buy the ticket, which is, which is how, what made you decide that this was going to be, because you made this the decision quite suddenly, obviously. You know what? There, you you can take a number with that. There, I think, are a lot of people scratching their heads. It was a flurry of information to be processed in a short amount of time. I mean, obviously, there was the gut inkling that there was something that I needed to do over here, some some need to help with. Um, also, 
understanding the area, I knew that I had to get here sooner rather than later in order to actually be of some. And you're seeing it now. People are so much more organized than they were a week ago. But a week ago, there were some very, very different needs and concerns. And it was important to me that I arrive in time to be able to help address some actual needs here rather than just, you know, being in the way. Tell me a bit about what inspired you to go. What was it that, I mean, I think a lot of us have been horrified and shocked or or at least, you know, troubled by the images, wanting to help. But what made you decide that the right way to help would be to to pack up and go? Gosh, Ben, you know, and that was the thing for me too. And I think, you know, in our area, especially this day and age, we're almost desensitized to a lot of this stuff. I mean, I, I'm very guilty of this. I'm incredibly distanced and cynical. And, you know, the world is a dark, scary place. And a lot of times, you know, you just see what pops up on the news and shrug your shoulders and what can you do, right? But for me, for me in this situation, first of all, it's, it's my roots, I very, very strongly feel that, you know, both sides of my family came from this region. If my grandparents, if my great grandparents hadn't made the choices that they made, this would be me. This, this very much could be me had my ancestors not made the decisions that they made and the calls that they made. And, you know, I do, I own a business. I have a house. I have a farm. These people don't have money to buy deodorant, you know, like, there's there the and the only difference there is birthright and this just it seems so personally unfair that there's so many of us in Canada who are there simply because of the decisions of people three four generations removed and there's people coming over every day with only the clothes on their backs and what little's in their suitcase and you know there's very few people that can just pick up and hop on a plane but I happened to be in a season of life where I could do that. And I just, I couldn't not, I couldn't, I couldn't not. What did you find when you arrived? I mean, I know it can always be sort of discombobulating, so to speak, when you think <laughs> I'm going to go help out and then you land someone, you're like, wow, this is big. Where do I go? What do I do? You know what? And to be honest, it wasn't discombobulating. I was very impressed. Um, I've always had a really deep respect for the Polish people and Polish society. And obviously, I'd come to Warsaw at a point when the trickle up effect of what was going on at the border hadn't yet reached the city. But I've honestly just been so impressed and inspired. You know, Poland isn't a country with resources or pockets, anything like Canada's, but the way they've responded, the way they've organized, the way they, I really, if anyone were to ask me, they really are doing everything they can here for the people on the ground. Yes, the border situation was very chaotic for the first few days. And the city I'm in, Rashov, is about an hour away. And you could definitely tell there were very high concentrations of people for the first few days, but you know, they've done their best to streamline, to disperse. Um, They're loading people in charter buses. The lineups are organized. Yesterday when I went to the refugee camp, they had signs posted. It's, it's very clear that everyone that can step in and help organize is organizing. And it's, it's really been, it's been kind of special to see the progression of that as time goes on. 
Yeah, tell me about those early days, because I think a lot of us um, watching what was happening at the borders understood that there was this great increase, because we spoke to people in Ukraine who were heading for the Polish border, that there was this sudden surge of people leaving. Uh, what was it like when you first got there, and what were, what were you doing? Well, the first the first day I went to the border was I was waiting to pick up a car full of people. And I mean, obviously, you can already tell from the chaos, the breakdown in communication you're having. You don't know if the person you're going to meet is going to be there that hour or that day or the next day. And, you know, the thing that struck me, some of the criticism I'd encountered in coming over here is, oh, there's going to be so many A groups, you're just going to be in the way. And Yes, but anything big takes time. And those first few days, I will never forget this. The people were coming across the border and the only aid that was there was these three or four guys in safety vests with a shopping cart full of toilet paper. And, you know, there were maybe some bottles of water there. Someone had moved in a few porta potties. But those first days, you know, no one had anticipated this. No one had planned on this. And you know, to these people's credit, they were doing a great job of emergency services and medical care and getting people in and out, but traffic was congested. It was, it was a very confusing time. And you were just helping people, picking them up and getting them to places where they could stay. You know, already by that point, then it had gotten to a point where you could hardly rent a car. You could hardly, already people were anticipating what was coming. So the fact that I ended up with a rental car it was pretty much the last one in the airport. And that was, you know, that was very early on in these days. And safety is a concern. You have women and children walking across. The walking across line was about 60 hours long at that point. And you have women and children crossing, you know, in, in very vulnerable states. And so to have someone there able to meet them and, you know, be a safe person, that was very much a need at that time. It still is, but Again, there's organization there now so that when these people are crossing, they're very quickly mobilized into the correct where they're supposed to be. But at that time, there was so much confusion. It just it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the safest environment. I'm speaking with Heidi. <clears throat> so I'm speaking with Heidi Bombach at Albertan, who is right now in Poland, helping uh, with Ukrainians crossing the border into that country, fleeing the war at home. After this, we'll talk a bit about the people she's met and what she remembers about who they are, where they've come from, and where they're headed. That's after this. I'm back with Albertan Heidi Baumbach, who's speaking to me tonight from Poland, where she's been volunteering to help all those crossing uh, the border from Ukraine, fleeing the war, heading into Poland. Uh, Many more than half a million people now already have crossed from Ukraine into Poland. Uh, Tell me a bit about the people you've met, because it must be such a variety of people from places and the stories they must be telling you. Oh, Ben, it's been, you really... You really do see the best of people. You're catching them at their most vulnerable, but also their most real. And, you know, the kindness I've seen, even just from, you know, the guy helping me figure something out at the gas station to the owner of this apartment, you know, there was a mix up on Airbnb and this guy had already lent his farmhouse to another family of refugees. And we arrived here at this apartment and he had his laundry hanging up and he had his bag packed and you said you he said you come in here I'll find somewhere else to stay um you know you just I I've had heartfelt conversations calling you know my banking headquarters back home I've had 
customer support with my cell phone provider have a heartfelt conversation you it's a commonality of yeah it's just it's there's something about it that does still bring people together just that acknowledgement of the difficulty of the times i think because you did rent an airbnb to house people right yes exactly uh, tell me about the people you've met coming from ukraine i have met well i thought I was going to be, again, the breakdown in communication, Mm -hmm. I thought I was going to be picking up a car full of orphans. I had heard that they were getting drove to the border and needed someone to take care of them. Obviously, I work with children for a living. So this was something that was brought to my attention as something that I might be able to be of assistance with. And I showed up to pick this car full of orphans up. And there was a cluster of like at least 12 people standing there that somehow I was supposed to be doing something with right so it was what it ended up being was it was a family that was working in affiliation with an orphanage over there and you know with ukrainian culture the family unit being such a strong bonding force and also the reality that a lot of these women were crossing without their husbands Mm -hmm. it was a large family of siblings traveling together with their small children which were all similar ages so um, thankfully I had this apartment here and we all just kind of crammed in it and everybody got a warm shower and, you know, the bathroom lineup, we just kind of figured out and kids all crammed in one little hide a bed and, you know, we made grocery runs and got stuff for borscht and it was, it was somewhere that was safe and it was somewhere that, you know, you, you just need that time to regroup. Right. Yeah. And are they moving on from, from where you are? Who's, who's with you tonight? Tonight, I'm waiting again, the, the communication leg, it's actually a, um, one of our translators from a news crew that was here called me out of the blue this afternoon and said that he had an elderly woman he'd come across and could she pop over in 15 minutes and would I have a place for her? And I said, you know what? Yes, I think tonight's a night I can make that work. So that was two hours ago. So we'll see if she shows up here at some point. Um, one of the biggest logistical limitations is mm-hmm. transportation right now. Right. So, you know, a lot of these people are just at the mercy of whoever can give them a ride when. What are they bring? What are people bringing with them across the border? And what are they telling you about what they've just seen? That's a really good question, Ben. Um, what I've been seeing here, you know, the kids... Obviously, kids are what you first notice. Um, The kids are very happy to have some space after sitting in a vehicle for five or six days. They're happy to run around. They're happy to do somersaults on furniture. You know, they're happy to blow up balloons and, and, you know, throw them around the room. The kids are very happy to just have some space and mobility. And, you know, I even sense that with the adults. They're happy to go outside for a walk. Um, obviously the nurturing tendencies, the nesting tendencies, there's been so much joy here in just having a kitchen and being able to cook a meal, being able to go to the grocery store and pick out fruits and vegetables. And, you know, that, that comfort food of you craving that one meal that, you know, your mom always made and having the freedom to be able to, to prepare that. What are they telling you about, about what they've fled, what they saw? Cause I understand that some of these families are coming from, from a war zone. Oh, Ben, it's nothing really prepares you for that. You know, there's a thing that we do with our girlfriends where we'll just, you know, sit up talking until three and four in the morning and nothing really could have prepared me for the conversation going into the neighborhood of 
the night that the bombs started dropping and, you know, they, they tell stories about, you know, they, they went, we went to the church and we pray and we pray, you know, going to the church to literally pray because bombs are dropping. The one woman um, pulled out her phone and showed me this video and everyone was sitting in a semicircle like we would in a bon- at a bonfire, except it was in some sort of concrete underground structure and you could hear the bombs falling in the background. And she just pointed to one woman and she said, that's my mom. Heidi Baumbach, thank you so much for speaking with me tonight. Keep up the great work. Awesome. Thanks, Ben. It's been a pleasure.